This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Well, this is going to be such a fun episode today because the With You in the Weeds team is all together. We've got everyone in the studio, and we are going to answer your questions. We have so many listeners now that even listen from other countries like Paraguay and other parts of the United States, and you guys have been sending us some questions to just follow up with some of the series that we've done. And so we're all here to access our brain power, put our heads together, and try to tackle some tough questions from you guys. Yeah, it's great to be here with everyone. Hey, if, if you guys want to know what it's like being in the studio with all of us, just imagine that you're riding with four of your friends in a Mini Cooper. Uh, we're <laughs> squished and cramped together, but we're here and we're going places. Sorry if I touch your leg here, John. I know you don't like that. You know, that's okay. I like being in a Mini Cooper. Yep. Like, it's made by BMW. Did you know that? I did not know yeah. that. Little clown yeah. car. Well, yep. I think we need all of us to come together and answer these questions. But before we get started, I have a really hard-hitting question for you guys, and that is, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah, that's pretty easy because the light bulb is going to figure out when it wants to change, right? Oh, well, you must have looked up the answer to this question. That was going to be my hard-hitting question. But yes, that's right. That's good therapist humor, but we need to laugh or else we're going to cry sometimes. I All mean, right, here's, here's one. Okay. Can I throw one out sure. there? Because we've done these episodes on narcissism, Yeah. right? So how many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? Ooh, I don't know. Well, well what would you say, John? That one's easy too. The narcissist will hold the bulb while the world revolves. <laughs> around him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know what? If you don't laugh, you'll cry, right? I'm just getting a good laugh at how tickled you guys are with all these jokes. So I'm laughing right now. Hopefully you guys are too. <laughs> I think we're laughing at our own jokes and I hope somebody out somebody there, out finds, there it finds it funny. <laughs> well, we have decided to devote this episode to answering some of the questions that our listeners have sent in because we have a lot of people following us on Facebook and Instagram and our episodes so far have covered such a wide range of topics. We've looked at managing your emotions, managing your relationships, managing difficult people. And one thing that I continue to notice as we put these series together is that as we prepare for these episodes and as we record them, I find myself reiterating these same concepts and principles in session with a client that same day or week. And so we know that what we're covering so far has been very applicable, but we also know that we can't cover every aspect of a topic in an episode, and that may leave some lingering questions for our listeners. And so we have four main questions that we're going to talk about this morning. And the first one comes from a listener who is wondering, what is the biblical perspective on the use of medication for anxiety, depression, 
or other mental health issues. And Austin, I know that you've thought a lot about this and you've studied this topic quite a bit. So I'd just love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'm really thankful that somebody asked this question because it's a really important one. And so I'll start just by naming the spectrum. I'll share my view, I'll tell a story, and then I'll end with some practical questions to ask before you wanna use or even while you're taking some medication for mental health reasons. Okay, the spectrum. I think on one end of the spectrum, we've got uh, those who are really suspicious of medication and maybe even believe that using any sort of medication for mental health reasons is not okay and maybe downright sinful. And I think, uh, before I just totally dismiss this, I think there's some understandable concerns here, especially the concern about wanting to be faithful to Jesus and keeping our trust in him and not a pill. I think the, the heart of that is really good. And yet what I think people on this side of the spectrum might miss is the fact that medication prescribed and used in the proper way under the supervision of professionals uh, is God's common grace to people. It's a common grace gift. And what I mean by common grace, that's just a theological doctrine that means God gives gifts to every person on the earth, regardless of if they follow him or not. And again, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This is rooted in Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 45. He says this, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so the original hearers that were living in a total agrarian society that was completely dependent upon rain for their crops to grow. I mean, this is their livelihood. And notice what the verse says, God sends the gift of rain not only to his followers, the just, but to everyone, the unjust. And so that principle that is called common grace, it can be applied, I think, to meds as well. Okay, so that was one end of the spectrum. But on the other end uh, are people who have, I don't know, sort of a hair trigger when it comes to using meds. In other words, if and when they feel increased sadness, uh, anxiety, depression, or experience any other hardship in their life, their default and unquestioned response is, let's just use medication. Let's, let's do that because that's gonna take the edge off. That's just gonna help. Okay, so, so let me start with the understandable concern. Life circumstances can be hard. I don't need to convince you guys. I don't need to convince anybody here at this table that that's true. There are things that happen to us that we're not prepared for, and a lot of times we can't handle on our own. And my guess, maybe you guys too, this person is just looking for some help and relief in the face of circumstances that are overwhelming to them. And so if that's you listening right now, I totally get that response and it makes sense. But I think there's a couple problems with only looking to medication to help you cope. Number one, medication typically only deals with symptoms, not root issues. And so think about it like this, if you take an ibuprofen for a broken bone, it might take some of the edge off the pain, but it's not gonna heal that bone. Meds are not sufficient to deal with that deeper issue. But boy, do I like ibuprofen. I wanna be on record, pro-ibuprofen. <laughs> yep. yeah. Especially for broken bones. <laughs> yeah, right. You're old uh, school. Drink that bottle, man. <laughs> uh, but, but a more serious issue can be that you're also, your body gets used to any medication. And so what's gonna happen is that you're gonna need more and more of it to get the same effect. And this can create all sorts of problems and side effects, addiction and more. Um, we were talking earlier, there's a great book if you're interested in, in reading called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions by a guy named Johan Hari. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. He's not a Christian, 
But he tells his own story of how he essentially became addicted to medication for his anxiety and depression and how he came to see things differently. So that's just a, a, a book that if you're interested in learning more, check that out. So, okay, so if we shouldn't have a hair trigger to use meds, but then if we shouldn't completely rule them off the table, how should we view them? Well, here's a second point. Here's my view. And it was given to me by a very wise gentleman. His name's John Tennant. Don't know if you guys heard of him. I heard this from you a few years ago and you said, meds are like floaties. <laughs> you remember this? <laughs> yeah, I got it from somebody else and it's always just stuck in my head. It's a great that's, visual image. That's yeah. how it works, right? <laughs> floaties, I mean, they keep you from drowning, which is good, but they don't help you swim. And so let me unpack that. They keep you from drowning, right? Some people really are drowning in life. Maybe that's you right now. And, you know, you're trying your best to love Jesus, believe in him, remember the scriptures, be faithful, and things still might be overwhelming. There might be all kinds of reasons for this, but in this case, I think uh, it's okay to explore looking at the medication under the supervision of a licensed medical professional. But guess what? That medication, that prescription, whatever, that's not going to help you swim. You know, swimming might mean learning some coping techniques for how to deal with a difficult coworker or practicing regulation calming techniques to help you calm down when your toddler has been screaming at you <laughs> all mm. morning. Mm -hmm. I don't know, guys, I've been talking for a while. Any questions or things that you would add to that? You know, one thing I will add is, and I say this to my clients, if because sometimes they get concerned, if I go on a medication, it's going to change me. It's going to change mm. my personality. And along with your floaty analogy, if you genuinely have something biological that's happening and you get the right medication, and there are a lot of general practitioners out there who are really good, but there are some who just kind of low, throw the latest thing from the pharmaceutical reps, and they're not as skilled as a really good psychiatrist. So if you get the right medication, you're not going to need more and more and more of it like an addict would. Um, it's going to balance things out so that you can start working on things. Yeah. You know, another way I've heard this explained is that you can't treat an organic problem spiritually and you can't treat a spiritual problem organically. Ooh. And I think it it does take wisdom to discern what is happening inside the body and when is medication going to help and when, as you're saying, Austin, am I just covering up a deeper symptom and not addressing the root cause? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really good. Yeah, and then the last thing I'd say, and you guys are helping me articulate this, you know, we live in a fallen world, Genesis mm -hmm. 3 world. Things happen to us and we do things to people. I think one of the symptoms of the fall has been that our brain chemistry and biology we just come out and it's broken. What I mean by broken, that, that doesn't take away the dignity of a person. Every person has dignity. But our brain is not supposed to work, doesn't work the way it should be, the mm -hmm. way it was meant to be for no reason other than we just live in a fallen world. And sometimes this common grace gift of medication can be the thing that returns that to a state of normalcy. Okay, the next thing is the story. It's not my story. <laughs> Again, John, it's your story. Will you tell just briefly your experience with this? Yeah, I, I can say two things. Like, I was diagnosed as a kiddo with ADHD, and so for a while I took ADHD meds, um, but then tapered off, didn't become dependent upon it at all. In my later adult life, I went through a period of intense, prolonged, chronic stress and my wife looked at me and said, you're just, I think you're depressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went and saw a good doc and the doc said, yeah, you're in an office without a window 
and you've been through eight years of a life transition, let's try a depression med. Mm -hmm. And I took it for a period of time and it was very, very helpful, but I did not become dependent upon it, phased it out, mm -hmm. but it was really helpful for sure. a period of time. And I, what I noticed was I didn't notice that I was, there was no high, there was no, you know, feeling of elation. It was just, huh, I hear the birds singing. Yeah. yeah. And problems that would come my way became manageable right. instead of overwhelming. Yeah. So that's great, John. Thanks for sharing that. What yeah. about your meds? Yeah. Shay? Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> Shay's giving me the evil. Throw eye. all our meds no, on the kidding. table. <laughs> well, let me end this piece just with some practical questions for you guys that you can ask yourself uh, if and when you're considering or taking meds. Here's the first Where do you default on that spectrum? Just know where you're coming from. Do you default to you're more suspicious? Do you default to I think they're okay? Just name that. Hmm. Second question, uh, consider why you're using them. I think that makes a big difference. Are you using it just to cope, just to make life easier? Is it coming at the expense of swimming, so to speak? I don't know well, your motivation. At but... the expense of doing good therapy and like work on yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Third one, you know, seems silly to say, but how are you actually getting these medications? I think these need to be prescribed by a licensed professional. Uh, don't just get them from your roommate or share on their prescription. Uh, I've known a lot of people who've done that. That's that's dangerous and not the way to do it. Um, and probably for, illegal, right? And not yes. probably. It yeah. is it illegal. Is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> not probably is illegal, yeah. Uh, next one, just how much are you actually taking? Go by what is prescribed on the bottle. Ask your doctor. Don't try to go under or over. Um, and then the last thing, who else knows? You know, it... it Make this kind of a team sport, so to speak. Maybe talk, talk to a friend, let them know, talk to a parent, bring some other people that trust you, and then you mm -hmm. can get some outside discussion from this. Don't kind of be the lone ranger on this piece. L let me add one thing to that real quickly. There's research on how medication actually can lead to greater problems if you don't combine it with good counsel, good therapy, and good relationship to work on yourself. Because your hope becomes, oh, the medication's gonna mm -hmm. like heal me. Mm -hmm. If you don't do any other work, you go off of the medication and you realize, I still have these same problems. Yeah. And then you lose more hope. Mm -hmm. I think um, these are all great cautions and things for us to think about. It's a very balanced perspective for people to consider. But now I want to move us on to our next listener question, and we're really going to switch gears here. Um, but one of our listeners wrote in and asked, what does the Bible say about divorce? You know, we talked a lot about relationships, toxic relationships, red flags in relationships. Shay, I know that this is a question you've had to address because we have a divorce care class that's offered at our church, and you go and speak to that class. And so I'm really curious, how would you answer that listener's question? Come on, Shay. So I get stuck on this podcast with answering <laughs> about divorce. Is but that you, what I'm hearing? But you've yeah. got wisdom here. Yes, you do. Well, thanks, John. I, I, I do get to ask this question all the time in our church. I've, I've preached on it. Um, as Lynn said, I, I do teach on it in our divorce care class that we run on a regular basis that has really helped mm -hmm. uh, so many people. Um, and obviously, you know, where we're coming from on this is we believe the Bible's God's word. And so God regulates marriage by his commandments. Um, he created marriage after all. So he defines it. Uh, he tells us how it's best to function. And so I, I'm assuming, or at least I'm hoping that our listeners here see it as somewhat authoritative in our lives, uh, because that's per the perspective I'm, I'm going to go from. But, um, and, and when I talk about divorce, 
and what God has to say about it, I always try to balance truth with grace mm-hmm. be, because that's what we see in God's word. Uh, some of us, I, I think, need to hear the truth um, because we live in a too easy divorce culture. Uh, marriage is disposable. But, but some of us need to hear God's grace and not walk around like we're second-class citizens mm. uh, because we've been divorced or you've been put divorced. That's a good point, yeah. And so it's, it's really um, both of those, truth and grace. But, but Jesus is asked, if you remember, by the Pharisees about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. It's one of the main chapters in the Bible um, where he speaks about it. And I won't read it just for time's sake, but just to summarize, remember the Pharisees were always seeking to trap Jesus and to get him to contradict the law of Moses. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? You know, he doesn't like the way she looks anymore. Uh, he doesn't like the way she cooks. He's fallen out of love with her. Remember, this is a very patriarchal society. And, and Jesus, in a rebuke to them, quotes Genesis 2 and says, Haven't you read that in the beginning God made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so I think, guys, he gives us here a pretty good definition of marriage. What is marriage? Well, he says it's leaving and it's cleaving. And and we've talked about this in past episodes, but we're leaving behind our parents to to cleave or be united to our wives when, when when a person or when a couple gets married. They're making a covenant. They're promising things. They're promising their present love, but also their future love and care. And to be with them till right till death do you part. So there's the design, and that's the ideal. That's exactly right. So what if? Yeah, and, and so the Pharisees ask, "Is it lawful, right, for a man to divorce his wife?" And Jesus says, "What God has joined together, let man not separate." In other words, God intends for marriage to be permanent. That's that. There's beauty in that. That's how God has designed it for our good. Uh, for our flourishing and to protect us. That's the ideal. But the question that we could ask is, does God ever allow for divorce? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. In in fact, in Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, now catch this, except for marital unfaithfulness, or that's what the NIV says, or maybe some translations say adultery, and marries another, commits adultery. See, Jesus says that in cases of adultery, you may divorce. Now, he's not commanding divorce. You don't have to get a divorce. And in fact, we've had couples that I'm sure that you all have counseled and and other people in our church that where where adulteries occurred and they've stuck it out and they've worked through it. Um, Yeah, most of the time, well, not most, but many times they want to work through it. Right. Um, but if it's a pattern and if there's an unrepentant spouse, that other partner can feel really trapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, good, good point, John. So in this case, divorce, allowing divorce, then God's showing mercy. Absolutely. <clears throat> and it's interesting in that verse that Jesus doesn't actually use the Greek word for adultery. He, he could have, but he uses the word pornea 
which is broader in scope, meaning sexual immorality. So there could be cases where there is such gross sexual immorality in a marriage that God allows for divorce. So he's not just saying it's not just adultery, but it could be other things. Perhaps it's pedophilia or other gross sexual immoral sins. Or not to muddy the waters too much, and this might be a little controversial, but what about ongoing, unrelenting use of virtual adultery? Absolutely. Like pornography, mm-hmm. going to strip clubs, uh, just crossing those boundaries and showing no remorse. And I've seen a lot of guys, especially in our culture, just normalize that. Mm. Yeah, that's a great qualifier, John. I, I think what this is not saying is that you know, you realize that your husband gets the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Right. And, okay, right. I'm, out of here. I'm out of this marriage, right? That, that's not what this is saying. Yeah. But, but, um, but if there's ongoing addiction type of issues, then, then that, that might fall under this category of sexual immorality. Yeah, is, that the, is that the only time that the, so just the adultery piece, is there any other t- places in the Bible that Jesus speaks or the scripture speak to about yeah, divorce? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. Um, it, it's not the only exception the Bible gives. Uh, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave you, right, perhaps mm-hmm. you, you become a Christian and your spouse thinks, you know what, they're, they've gone off the rails, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, and, and they leave, um, it, Paul says to that person, it, it, it's okay to divorce. You're free. Yeah. Paul says in cases like these, someone's deserted the marriage, you may divorce. And so the question is, is that it? Adultery and desertion by an unbeliever? Well, I don't think so. See, I think what God is teaching us is a principle, and it's this, that whenever there has been such a, and and this is the phrase I'm going to use, a radical breach of the marriage covenant, Mm -hmm. where the marriage is essentially over, I think God allows for divorce, and obviously adultery and desertion would be examples of that. So that would include other things. Um, just to be ridiculous and to kind of drive home the point of the principle, what, what about if a spouse tried to kill the other? Okay, mm-hmm. If you have to sleep with one eye open, I think that's a sign that maybe your marriage isn't in a good place, right? Well, yeah, and, and this would fall under abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or what if your spouse has committed some other felony? Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps that would be grounds. Desertion. Uh, yes. Maybe. Uh, desertion. Um, Throw the, not to muddy the waters again. This is a very, like, you have to use wisdom, right, in this area. Because we're not trying to say, hey, look for a loophole so you can get out. Right. We're saying if you're stuck, trapped, and the covenant has taken a hit and the marriage is falling apart because there's been this radical breach, there is a way forward that can bring freedom. Yeah. Um, what about a spouse who, let's say, gets into gambling? And they completely wipe out the family's finances and can't provide for the family. Right. Yeah. That's that's a well, great. Well, it's like example. financial infidelity. You're, yeah. You're yeah. not. 
being honest about your finances. Yeah, and I, and I like your point of of it. it this requires wisdom. Yeah. We need other people in our lives because we all think right. We've got grounds for divorce. Right. It's so easy <laughs> to put ourselves in the best light, and so we need to bring other people in that can speak into our lives, speak truth to us. Yeah, and 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 with grace. Um, and, and in some sense, a little bit what those examples that you're bringing up, John, that, that's my, my, my own story. That's my mm-hmm. mom's story. Um, my mom divorced my dad when I was in fourth grade because of his alcoholism. And um, he had struggled with alcohol for various reasons um, for many, many years. And so I grew up in a home uh, where that was occurring and, and we sought help for my dad. He went to AA. He, he was, uh, we, he went to treatment facilities, those kind of things. He, he struggled with alcoholism. And, uh, but it got to a point um, where he was, he, he just, he, he couldn't work. And uh, he was um, getting into accidents and those kind of things. And he was getting ready to take us down financially. Mm-hmm. And my mom, even though I still, I, I think she loved him. Um, she realized that she had to divorce him because we were going to lose our home. And so she did that to protect me. Mm-hmm. Well, she was having to be both mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your dad had like... Abandoned. Uh, basically abandoned yeah. and put a nine popper in the covenant. Yeah. And so the question is, was she wrong to do that? She divorced him. Was she supposed to just pray, well, I hope he commits adultery. Right. And, and so I can check this box off biblically. Well, no. Um, if you think that you've missed the principle, he had already, in some sense, deserted the marriage. And, and, and to be honest with you, I'm thankful that my mom did that. You know, everyone wishes that you grow up, that you could grow up with two loving, stable parents. But sometimes having one stable parent is, is better than living with an addict. And there is research on this and hope to people who are in this position that one parent who knows how to engage the child like emotionally and be there for them, like the kid can come out in a healthy way. Absolutely. My mom never remarried, but I think I, I think she divorced. She had biblical grounds. And so therefore, I think she could have remarried if she would if she wanted to. Tim Keller summarizes, I think, the Bible's view of marriage and divorce this way. And I think this is so good. But he says divorce should be like an amputation. See, a a doctor who willy-nilly goes around cutting off body parts. Oh, you've got a scratch on your arm? Let's cut the arm off. Well, we'd lock him up, right? Mm. Or at least we should. And that's the way our culture treats divorce. It's too easy for some. Hmm. You know, people give up too quickly. It, it, it should be the last resort after, you, after you've tried everything to make it work. But sometimes divorce is like an amputation. It's sometimes necessary to save the life. And God allows for that. I, I like that analogy. Yeah, it's a, a great analogy. But yeah. let me just say this, that even unbiblical divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Right, mm-hmm. Romans eight one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we when we in any divorce, whether it's biblical or not, we always have to live with the consequences of that. But I think we 
we, we need to hear. We need to hear both God, what God has to say, the truth of what he thinks about divorce, but also we need to hear what the Bible says about God's grace to, to sinners um, when we maybe have divorced for unbiblical reasons. There is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And living in an imperfect world. Yeah. So, Shay, I hear you saying that this is a case-by-case basis. There are a lot of factors for us to take into consideration. A lot of these situations are very complex, and there aren't easy answers. And so, Shay, I really appreciate your wisdom on this topic because each situation is different. And when we meet with people as therapists or pastors, we really try to get to know the context, the history, and the factors that are going into that particular marriage dynamic. So when we come back, we're going to tackle another listener question. We'll be right back in a jiffy, but we want to take a quick pause to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, think about texting this episode to a friend and find us on Instagram at with you in the weeds. Okay, well, we are back answering your questions today. And in the first part of this episode, we tackled what does the Bible say about medication and also what does the Bible say about divorce? So now we're going to look at a question that a listener asked, and that is, how do I deal with an emotionally immature parent? And this is so common, especially since we live in a college town. I've met with a lot of college students over the last 15 years, and Given that that's such a critical and transformative time of people's lives, this is a question that people bring in because now they have some distance from their parents, from their family of origin. They can now step back and look back and kind of start to analyze and evaluate what's healthy about my family, what's unhealthy about my family. And inevitably, they begin to notice and name, huh, there's some dysfunction in my family. And this can be kind of scary for kids to acknowledge that, but it's definitely part of their growth process. And the good news that I like to share with people right off the bat is if they're starting to recognize, hey, you know, I have a parent, my mom or my dad, that just isn't very mature, and they've actually created some hurt or some drama in my life, I want to let them know that they can grow beyond their parents. They can actually outgrow their parents and their own emotional maturity. And so you're not limited by the dysfunction that you see in your parents. And so when we talk about an immature parent, maybe the best way to get into this is to just explain, well, what is an emotionally mature parent look like? What are those characteristics of an emotionally mature adult? Well, I would say that a mature person is someone that can maintain a deep emotional connection with someone and at the same time function independently and be able to kind of vacillate between these two in their lives. And so that means they're not overly dependent on someone else, nor are they completely disengaged or avoid emotional connection. Another thing I would say is that a mature person can name and identify their thoughts, their feelings, their needs, and express those things directly without attacking, shaming, or manipulating another person. They also have a strong sense of self. They have a personal identity. They're comfortable with themselves. They can be empathetic, rational. They can hear what's going on in other people's lives. 
while still pursuing their own goals and meeting their own needs. They can manage stress, they can manage their feelings, and they're adaptive, they're flexible. And, um, you know, they don't become paralyzed when things happen. They can keep moving forward. So, Lynn, as you're sharing, two thoughts come to mind. One, part of me is really discouraged because I'm like, does that <laughs> is this person <laughs> exist? Right. The emotionally mature person? So, right. It seems so, so great rare. and so rare. Mm. So I'm kind of discouraged and maybe are too. But the other reason, the other thing is I'm so glad you're actually bringing this up because it gives a picture of the ideal and the way things should be. And that, if nothing else, gives, let's just say me, something to shoot for. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, you know, you can grow out, grow your parents. You can go further than your parents have taken you. It's a good kind of like North Star to say, okay, maybe I can become the mm -hmm. person and the parent that I never got. So I'm glad yeah. you're bringing this up. It's discouraging and encouraging all right. at once. I know. It, I mean, it's such a, we're all on this growth journey, right? But we kind of have to know what that ideal, what that mature person looks like so that we can begin to notice what an immature adult or parent looks like. And so what does an immature parent do? Well, maybe they're ruled by their emotions. They fly off the handle. They act irrationally when something happens. Or maybe they believe that their child exists to meet their needs and mm -hmm. to cater to their wishes. And so there really isn't room for the child to separate and have their own identity. Maybe an immature parent is very egocentric or self-absorbed, and they really lack empathy towards you as their child. Um, and so what can end up happening there is that the child actually feels responsible for the parent and for the parent's feelings. And sometimes we call this parentification. And essentially what that is, is that the child is taking on the well-being of the parent or other siblings in the home. And so if you recognize that, hey, I might have an emotionally immature parent, here's just a few things that I want to say about that. The first one is, it's so good that you've recognized that. Because what usually happens is that this is outside of our conscious awareness. So now that you know about it, you can do something about it. Secondly, I would say that you just need to start to begin to understand what impact has this had on you. Do you feel responsible for your parents' needs? Do you constantly worry that you've upset them? Do you withhold information from them because you don't trust them? Do you walk around on eggshells? These are just questions to begin to ask yourself so that you can connect those dots. And then the last step I would say is just begin that process of healthy detachment. We talked about this in a previous episode, so go back and listen to the unrepentant person episode. But basically, you need to stop bringing those little kid needs to your parents and come to them as an adult, as someone who's fully formed yourself. And you can take those needs to other people that do care, that are mature, that are safe, and just start to work on taking ownership for yourself because you can only control yourself you can only be in charge of your own thoughts, feelings, and needs. Um, and so these are just basic principles to get someone started, but I hope that, that answers that question. And now, John, you're going to answer another listener question that has to do with spouses that are disagreeing over their thoughts and desires. Hmm. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, a, a listener asked this question. Um, what if my spouse has deeply rooted desires that I do not share. Now, obviously, you can't answer this thoroughly 
in just a few minutes of podcast time. So let me just give you some trailheads to point you in a good direction. Number one, let's put a qualifier out there. Are the desires over which you differ healthy? Hmm. Healthy desires. I want chicken for dinner tonight and the other partner wants steak. That's pretty healthy, okay? What if it's, I want to watch porn together, honey, to enhance our sex life? Well, that's a pretty unhealthy set of differing desires. Mm. So just want to qualify that. Now, if the differing desires are healthy and just the normal kind of warp and woof of being married, let's go to the second point. Another trailhead. Uh, if it's a healthy differing, you go for compromise. Well, guess what? When two people get married, you have two different people that will not completely align with each other. Uh, we say to the marriage class, um, some of you have just married the wrong person. <laughs> and their eyes get like really big. And I say, the rest of you are married to someone with whom you don't get along. <laughs> so marriage is, is like that For once everyone. you get into mm -hmm. it. So being different means you have a marriage. So compromise becomes the name of the game. And that means essentially you each agree to be mutually unhappy because each of you is going to sacrifice something you feel strongly about for the greater goal of bringing health to the marriage. Does that answer your question, Shay, that we're just supposed to be mutually unhappy? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Those two haven't made eye contact the whole episode. So we are holding hands. hands. We're going to hold hands. Well, yeah. and, and it's yeah. because of this principle that the Bible teaches. Marriage is the greater goal that each of you makes a sacrifice for. So it's not a 50-50, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Let's make a deal. It's about what do each of us need to do to contribute to the overall stability and health of the marriage. And at different times, each of you will need to take one for the team. This brings in a third point. So the third trailhead is accept differences. Uh, M. Scott Peck said this in his book. He said, if you accept that life is hard, it gets easier. Mm. So accept the reality that you do have differences and notice them and pay attention to them. And instead of dividing over them and becoming resentful, wanting the other person to change, you learn to accept and appreciate them. Uh, there are only two options if you want to stay together and build a friendship. You either accept and appreciate the differences or you become resentful and you divide over them. Yeah, I, I tell couples, you know, marriage is two people coming together to solve problems that they never would have had if they would have just remained single. Yeah, I, lo I love that. That's the perfect definition. Uh, so differences can be approached from two angles. This is just something I use with clients. You can see a difference, bump into it and say, man, I had no idea this person would be like this. If I would have known this, I may not have married this person they create problems for me. Mm. Or approach it like this. Hmm, this is a surprise. I didn't factor this in. I wonder how God is calling me to love this person who is so different from me. I love that one because, and not to get to Jesus Juki here, that's exactly what God does for us. God loves us. He didn't abandon no. And so we are called to embody, it sounds like what you're saying, we're called to embody that same love for the other person when we bump into a difference. Absolutely. So I, I say this to clients, there is a significant shift that will occur in a marriage when you move away from the position of why is this problem coming up again? 
this person just keeps bringing these problems to me. Mm. When you shift from that to who is this person who struggles so much with this and how can I understand their story and love them through it? That's a significant healthy shift in a marriage. So that's what I'm comfortable saying in answer to this question in this podcast. Yeah. So I think we need to land the plane. Yeah, I would just say thank you everyone for listening, for submitting questions. Keep sending us your questions because I know we're tackling hard issues and we just thank you for letting us be in the weeds of life with you. So we'll see you next time. All right, it's been great, guys. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.